This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 197, Lying. I am Hal Hammonds and I am a Citizen of Heaven and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. Lying is bad. Everyone knows that. And yet most of us do it. Is that just the way things are? Or can we hold ourselves to a higher standard? This week we will discuss how the Bible makes heroes out of liars and yet condemns all liars to hell, Jordan Peterson's thoughts on the lies we tell ourselves and others, the liars we elect and re-elect and how we can be part of the solution, or at least stop being part of the problem, and whether getting the win by lying makes the lying better or worse. We'll start with what I've been preaching. Here's a list of characters from the Bible. What do they all have in common? Peter, David, Rahab, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Of course, since you already know the theme for this week's show, you're already halfway there. They're liars. They knew what the truth was in the moment, but telling the truth would have been inconvenient, costly, or dangerous. So they lied instead. But beyond that, each of these characters is at the very least held up for us as a model of faith and obedience. Most of them, in fact, are described after their death in such a way as to make it basically guaranteed that they are among the faithful that will spend eternity in heavenly glory. And that's a puzzler based on what we read in Revelation 21, verse 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Maybe you're listening today for precisely this reason. You've also been struggling with the way the Bible treats liars, and you're hoping I will have some sort of insight into the issue that will turn on all the lights and leave no questions in your mind at all about how God can welcome liars while also committing to excluding liars. If that's the case, I have bad news for you. I'm as confused as you are. Instead of regaling you with a vast expanse of what I don't know, let me share a few things I do know. I know lying is bad, always. There are no exceptions. The whole book of Revelation, in fact, is rooted in the idea that you should not tell lies, particularly lies about your faith, and even more particularly, lies about your faith that give you a sense of safety and security in the moment. Back in chapter 2, a Christian from Pergamum named Antipas is singled out for having given his life for the cause. Judging from the issues that were facing the churches of Asia in the first century, it's reasonable to assume Antipas could have saved his life with one or two well-placed lies. He did not and he's praised for it. He fits squarely into the setting of Revelation 14.13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. I know sinners can, and often do, come to repentance. All you have to do is read Psalm 51 to see how sorry David was with regard to his deception in the matter of Uriah and Bathsheba. Peter is dripping with regret after his denial when he had breakfast by the lake with Jesus and the other disciples in John 21. I know there's a difference between a mistake and a lifestyle. It's worth noting that the topic of the ones who get in versus the ones who are kept out is revisited in Revelation 22, 14 and 15. Again, a list of outsiders is given, and there the phrase all liars is replaced with everyone who loves and practices lying. It might be a stretch to assume the Spirit is using these phrases interchangeably, but that certainly seems to be the point. I don't want to leave the door open for someone to think that he or she can tell a lie at a critical juncture and plan to repent of it later. That sounds a lot like loving a lie in my book. But I do think it's safe to say there's a difference between someone who makes a mistake in a critical moment, or even has a tendency to do so, 
and someone who routinely incorporates deception into his or her regular conversation. I know biblical examples are not always perfect. Rahab shows us how faith acts in Joshua chapter 2, hiding the Israelite spies and lying about her knowledge of them. She's held up for us in Hebrews 11.31 and James 2.25, not because of her full compliance to the will of God, but rather because she knew enough about God to side with him. How guilty she felt in the moment about her deception is entirely beside the point. For that matter, so is the question of whether she became remorseful afterward. I like to think she learned lessons about honesty and trust as she grew in her faith. But even if she didn't, what we know about her is enough to teach even seasoned, experienced disciples about what it means to be a believer. Maybe most important of all, I know that we serve a patient and merciful God. The picture of glory given to us in Revelation is not meant to inspire us to perfect obedience, certainly not to cause us to despair when we fall short. It's meant to assure us that we are the people of God with all our faults. As Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows those who are His. If we commit to being His people in this life, including telling the truth about Him when a lie would be easier, He will commit to being our God. And that's no lie. This is what I've been reading. Rule 8 in Dr. Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life is tell the truth, or at least don't lie. He broadens the concept of a lie considerably, and for my money, in some interesting directions. If you want the full treatment, as always, you should read the book itself. But I'll boil it down a bit and then talk about what he says regarding, first, lies that face outwardly, and then a few words about lies that face inwardly. Lying to the world often falls under the heading of what he calls the life lie, a term he borrows from Alfred Adler. The life lie has two components. One, the liar claims to know the truth in its fullest sense, including what the truth will be extending far into the future. Two, the liar builds his vision of the world by saying the path he marks out is the only one to reach the only vision of the world that is at all tolerable. This is the approach we see politicians using constantly. Whether it's a tax increase, an alteration of social policy, a foreign entanglement, a pending election, or any other matter. The rhetoric is always the same. Do as I say, or it will be the end of the world as we know it. Well, depending on how you define your terms, the world as we know it ends every single day. Change is the rule rather than the exception, at least with regard to the details of the news items. Your weight and body temperature are lower in the morning than in the evening. An organized closet becomes disorganized in a matter of weeks, if not days. The world is in a constant state of flux. And it's preposterous to think that some blowhard on the television knows the precise path that will lead to the precise state of being that we all desire, that in fact we cannot live without. It's all a ploy to achieve the objectives of the blowhard himself. But more on politicians later on. The truth is a lot less self-serving than the lie. In reality, most of the problems in this world have no solutions. Jesus himself said, you always have the poor with you in John 12, 8. Solomon says the same about fairness and justice in Ecclesiastes 1.15. What is crooked cannot be straightened, what is lacking cannot be counted. To present ourselves as the solution to these age-old problems, let alone the only solution, is nothing more than a massive display of ego. There's no truth in it. I'm not saying, nor were Jesus or Solomon, that we can't make the best of a bad situation. But let's quit kidding ourselves about who we are and what we're capable of. That brings us to the inward-facing lies, the lies we tell ourselves. And most notably, according to Peterson, the lies we tell ourselves about ourselves. It can begin with something as simple as saying, I'm fine, when in fact you're not. 
We're not talking about the stiff upper lip that many of us were encouraged to adopt in difficult circumstances. Patience is a virtue, after all. No, this is more like the person who accepts a substandard existence because he or she is too lazy or cowardly to do anything about it. I'm not sure exactly how Dr. Peterson would come down on Jesus' position regarding turning the other cheek. According to Jesus, there is a certain amount of unfairness out there, and we have to find a way to bear up under it while maintaining our sense of faith, peace, and joy. But I think there is something to the idea that allowing yourself to be bullied incessantly, accepting ill treatment from your boss without looking for other options, constantly keeping your own opinions and preferences hidden, that this has a wearing influence on the human spirit. You may call yourself cooperative or generous, but in reality, you're forcing yourself to be someone you're not and making yourself miserable in the process. There is middle ground here. You can be assertive without being mean. You can ask for better circumstances without being ungrateful. You can claim something for yourself without depriving someone else. Refusing to accept the truth about the world or your part in it can never be an effective solution. Truth is not always comfortable or convenient, but it is always good. What was the problem with the one-talent man in Matthew 25? According to him, it was that his master was a hard man, reaping where he did not sow and gathering where he scattered no seed. But that same master gave two talents to another servant and five to yet another, and those servants found a way to make an imperfect world work to their advantage. It likely wasn't easy. It may have involved some trial and error, some reassessment of their abilities and opportunities, but they found a way to be true to themselves, to the task set before them, and to their master. Blaming one's own inadequacies and shortfalls on external circumstances is not merely lazy, according to the master of the story. It is also wicked. He owed himself and his master, to put it bluntly, the truth. You do too. Do a real assessment of your strengths and weaknesses. Don't assume the problem will be fixed when you get a raise, or when the kids are grown, or when your health improves. As Solomon wrote in Proverbs 23, 23, buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. Tell the truth, or at least don't lie. This is what I've been hearing. Well, since I brought politicians up, let's go down that road for a bit. I'm fully prepared to believe that I do not get the truth from my elected officials, at least not all of the truth. If I were being truthful myself, I'd say I actually prefer it that way. Sometimes it's best not to have the full scoop on how the sausage gets made. I'm okay with that. That's not what I want to talk about here. I want to talk about the fact that we, and when I say we, I mean I, still have this tendency to accept as truthful various things that are told to us by people who have shown a willingness to lie at the drop of a hat to further some sort of objective. In my mind, a propensity to be truthful is the most important characteristic in someone who wants my vote. I wish I voted more consistently like that. If I think the politician may be lying, what difference does it make what he or she is saying? Whatever line gets the poll numbers and donations up is the line that gets into the speech. If it's the exact opposite a few weeks later, well, that's what we have spin masters for. I accept that politicians and people in general may alter their presentations somewhat to meet the desires and expectations of a particular audience. My favorite example of this is from the 2000 presidential campaign of Al Gore. When asked about his position on tobacco one time, he said that if the tobacco in question was the vile cancer-causing plant that gave his sister lung cancer, he was against it. On the other hand, if the tobacco in question was the cash crop that brought a living to thousands of his fellow Tennesseans, he was for it. 
That's a good one, Al. I'll give you credit for that one. It's a tongue-in-cheek acknowledgement of the realities of the political landscape, like it or not. Not exactly thrilled with that part of the story, but I can accept it, even chuckle at it. The part I can't accept is when people like you and me just wholeheartedly and immediately accept anything our candidate says simply because he or she is our candidate. And I'm getting tired of the he or she thing at this point. Plus, with the whole pronoun controversy these days, I may not be saving anyone's feelings anyway. So I'm going to assume the politicians in question are male from this point forward. If the women feel they're getting robbed of their fair share of my spleen venting, I apologize ahead of time. Anyway, say Mr. X is running for a U.S. Senate in my state. He says he supports most of the things that I support, so Mr. X gets my vote, especially since Mr. Y says he opposes these same things. Turns out Mr. X is the winner. Yay, us. So he goes off to Washington, and you know the rest of the story. That brilliant, well-spoken idealist I heard give a speech way back when starts talking about concessions and brokered deals and reasonable expectations. Bottom line, he doesn't take any serious action toward all these things that we allegedly had in common. He continues to frustrate me for six years, and then I vote for him again. George Bush, the original, not W, brought the House down at the 1992 Republican National Convention when he said, Read my lips. No new taxes. And then he signed on with more taxes anyway. You see, the thing about great catchphrases is people will remember them. And when they turn out to be lies, that's not a good thing. It probably cost President Bush a second term. But who's the biggest villain in this story? A politician who doesn't keep his word? The citizens who jump ship for a third candidate and sabotage their own cause? Or the loyalists who hold the party line unquestioningly? feeding the notion that we don't really care whether our leaders tell the truth. I'm not trying to crawl into the voting booth with you. Your vote is your business. But let me make a suggestion. The next time you're voting for president or senator or congressman, pretend like you're voting for babysitter. If you suspect they can't be trusted around young children, or they might get drunk and burn the house down, or they might use your house as party central and force you to pay to clean up the mess, don't vote for him. What's the worst that could happen? A liar with a blue tie gets elected instead of a liar with a red tie, or vice versa? You want to start a grassroots campaign? Start holding politicians accountable for their behavior. Heap public shame on public disgraces, especially the ones you voted for. Don't jump to the conclusion that they're being framed by their enemies across the aisle, or that the press is out to get them, or that their indiscretions are no worse than anyone else's. Vote for people who tell the truth. And vote them out when they stop. The story goes that a young George Washington chopped down a cherry tree and then confessed his crime, saying, I cannot tell a lie. That story itself is probably a lie, but we'll let that slide for now. The point is, deep down, we still respect people who tell the truth, especially when they tell it on themselves. We just convince ourselves sometimes that we like the lie better. Hold yourself to a higher standard than that. The apostle wrote in 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. What sort of relationship with God's truth do you have if you regularly hold up the hands of liars just so you can buy another gun or get your student debt erased? Come up with an answer you can live with. Then go vote or don't go vote accordingly. This is what I've been playing. When I was young, we played a card game called I Doubt It. I have since discovered that the game goes by other names in other places, some of which are not appropriate to repeat in this space. In any case, the game is pretty simple. 
A regular deck of 52 cards is spread out equally, or equally enough, among the players. The objective is to run out of cards before anyone else does. The first player begins play by ridding his hand of as many aces as he can claim to have. Someone who suspects the player is lying can call out, I doubt it, and force the player to turn his cards face up. If his claim was inaccurate, he must take the entire discard stack into his hand. If he was telling the truth, the accuser takes the discards. Then after any possible challenges are resolved, play resumes with the next player declaring all his twos and so on, all the way through to kings and back around to aces. There's a certain amount of strategy involved. Most obviously, you shouldn't claim to have four of a kind when you don't. At least one other player will have evidence of your lie right there in his hand. Most importantly, of course, you want to be telling the truth when your hand empties out. There's no way you'll get a bluff through at that point. I'm not going to lie, pardon the expression. There is a certain satisfaction in saying three jacks when you have none. Staring everyone in the table in the eye, daring them to challenge your truthfulness. Actually, staring people in the eye for extended periods of time is a pretty good tell that you are lying, according to the experts. Not that I'm encouraging people to lie in the broader sense, I'm not. And the topic of lying in the context of game playing has been touched on before in this space. I don't want to go down that road again here. I would like to deal with the idea of accountability for a few minutes, though. I doubt it comes with a built-in punishment for deception. That's what makes the game work. You get caught, you get punished. You get caught too often or at the wrong time, you pretty much guarantee yourself a loss. But the game works precisely because you might get away with the lie. In the larger context of the game, the individual moves within the game are not nearly as important. All that matters is winning. Bending the rules of propriety is not that big of a deal. In fact, if it works out for you, it makes the victory even more satisfying. Actually, the Bible addresses this phenomenon. Proverbs 20 verse 14 reads, Bad, bad, says the buyer. But when he goes his way, then he boasts. The picture is of a person in the market trying to negotiate the price of a particular item. He claims that the item is subpar and haggles the price down. Then he brags to all his friends about how he took advantage of the seller who did not appreciate what he had. This approach probably won't work for you at the grocery store or gas station where prices are non-negotiable. And the average used car salesman likely is too savvy to fall for it. But if you're dealing with some random person selling junk out of his garage on Craigslist, you might save some money. Now, long-term listeners know all too well I'm all about saving money. Hal Hammond's famous tightwad. Come visit, I'll show you my jar of pennies. But at some point, negotiation becomes deceptive. Someone might say, if he's willing to part with it for $5, I'm doing him no harm by buying it for $5. And if I know at the time I can clean it up and sell it for 5000 that's none of his business. To an extent, I agree. But the bad, bad part of the proverb indicates the buyer is deliberately misleading the seller about the value of the item. That's lying. There's also the matter of cruelty that should be considered. And this is a bit more subjective. Say I find a comic book at the $1 table at my neighborhood garage sale. I'm pretty sure it's worth $100 or so, and I can flip it pretty easily for at least 75 That's a pretty significant profit for a half hour's work, if you even want to call it work. I buy the comic book for $1. You might make the case that I should have been more upfront about the value of what my neighbor was selling, but we'll cover kindness another time. What I think would be inexcusable is getting the seller to give me the comic for $0.25, cents, as though an extra $0.75 cents would improve my bank account in a significant way. No, I'm doing that simply because I love the idea of taking advantage of my neighbor. That's cruel, and cruelty is the opposite of loving my neighbor as myself. What kind of person do you want to be? Do you want to be the best wheeler dealer in town? 
Or can you do as Jesus asks in Matthew 10, 16, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves? If our behavior is being driven primarily by our love of God and neighbor, we're on the right track. If it's the love of money or some other carnal pursuit that's the overriding concern, it's time for you to decide who your master really is. Like Jesus says in Luke 16, 13, you can only have one. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.